0: Do you want to be a writer, but suffer from writer's block? I know I often do. Well, my guest today may have the perfect solution for us. The world's first AI powered writing and publishing platform that she says will help you put words three X faster on the page and transform the future
1: of writing, publishing, and connecting. I think for humans, our role in the creative process and writing is shifting. And in a way, we're liberated, right? I think instead of shouldering the burden of originality or coming up with new ways of structuring ideas into well-written pieces, we're becoming more like copy chiefs or editors or creative directors of our own work. We're not kind of coming up with all of it from from the ground up. So I think that is really how a lot of, you know, the AI emerging writing softwares and content creation softwares are going to shift the trend is you're not only going to have to come up with the ideas, but now the AI helps kind of collaborate with you into structuring them in a way that creates ultimately a quality piece of work or piece of art.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. The AI platform is the brainchild of tech entrepreneur, startup founder, and former beauty queen, Iman Obu. Obu is the author of a new book just released called The Glass Ledge, How to Break Through Self-Sabotage, Embrace Your Power, and Create Your Success. A Moroccan American, Obu is the founder and CEO of Sway Media, a digital women's content and empowerment platform. But as her book indicates, this journey from pageant winner to startup founder and now author has not been an easy one. Iman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so
1: excited to be here.
0: Your book begins on what you describe as one of the most gut-wrenching, life-altering days of your life back in the summer of 2018. You had already, I think, founded Sway, the content platform, and were having what would prove to be a very consequential lunch. So what happened to you that day?
1: Yeah. So that was one memorable moment in my entrepreneurial journey where I thought I was basically one day away and one contract away from unlocking the potential of my company and really move into the next level with my team, uh, with our mission of elevating more women's voices through you know a service media based company. But that day on my way actually to work, I received an email from the investor that was supposed to come in with a big check to take the next level. And overnight they decided that they will not be moving forward anymore with the investment. And so that kind of left me panicking, if you will, because up to that point, we had already had an extensive conversation with the investor. We've met a few times before we were basically on our way to just sign the deal and move forward. And I had hired a team already based on the investment coming in. We had an, a cohort of summer interns excited to get going and really be part of the experience. And I had to basically figure out on my way to work that day, how to break the news to my team after we've gotten everybody so excited about our next chapter in the company. And we went from that enthusiasm and excitement and cheering and celebrating just a couple of days before to having to lay off everybody. And basically even given our office away because we were down to our last dollars and we were you know mistakenly depending on that investment to really keep going forward so definitely a memorable moment but i think in hindsight it really forced me to take a step back and figure out what would really be the best model, what would be something you need to, to create from a tech perspective, but also from a business model perspective that is really going to not only stand out and be successful, but also keep us sustainable and not having to depend on investors every time we needed to move forward and unlock the next chapter of the company.
0: So describe what happened after you had that lunch and there's some very dramatic moments where you had to tell people and then, then what happened?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I had to literally put everything back into a trash bag um, because that's all we had at the time in the office and drag that across the WeWork floor that we were in and take everything back to, to my home because we were given that office away that same day. Because we couldn't pay anymore for that the rest of the month. Of course, a lot of employees at the time were very confused and cried and weren't sure if they were even getting paid for the amount of work they've putting uh, up to that point. I wasn't sure either. I had to say that I need to figure some things out in terms of, you know, financial compensation at that time. And I had to put a lot of my own money to you know, basically square away everything with everyone. And so there were a lot of cries, a lot of confusion. And It was just very, I would say, sudden. I think we weren't prepared for that because we went from the highest high to the lowest low. And then I went home. I, I was throwing up. I had kind of a panic, anxiety attack all day after that. I was crying. I had a rash in my abdomen, which is a physical symptom too. Every time I have kind of a stressful or an anxiety moment a couple weeks later i i had a kidney infection as well which i think you know from a spiritual perspective a lot of people say if you have kidney issues that's a very because you have stress a lot of stresses in your life and it kind of shows up as kidney issues so there were a lot of physical and mental issues after that for me and i really was kind of caught up in in an eternal dilemma of what do i do now do i just bankrupt the company and dissolve it and move on and just you know let investors know that it wasn't going to work out? Or do I take a step back, keep the company going, the site alive, be a one woman show again, kind of how it all started from you know early on and then figure it out as I go. And that's what I chose to do. Although I didn't really have a plan in place, I didn't really know what's going to come after that. I was in massive debt. I had you know, my credit card calling me every day to make payments and I couldn't at the time. So yeah, it was a very stressful summer, but I think it had been a really fundamental moment to build a stronger foundation, not only personally for my own personal transformation, but I think my own professional transformation as well.
0: And you were going from what round to what round in the startup at the time?
1: Well, we did a pre-seed round with a few really amazing angel investors that are aligned with the company. So it wasn't any uh, big institutional funding. And this was going to be the first actual seed round with institutional funding. So VCs and bigger funds kind of coming in with bigger checks. So it was going to be essentially our first official institutional round.
0: You went on this journey of trying to figure out what had happened to you and where you were going, but also how this impacted you. And and that leads to the title of the book, The Glass Ledge. And you say you now understand that you had stepped off or stumbled off what you call the glass ledge. So what is the glass ledge?
1: So the glass ledge refers to self-imposed glass ceilings. So self-imposed glass ceilings, or as I like to call them, internal Battles that we sometimes subconsciously put in place for ourselves. And a lot of those stem from, you know, external oppression or external challenges and barriers that we ultimately internalize as our own truth um, without really realizing it. I think for me, for as long as I remembered up to that point, I was taking on a victim mindset throughout my fundraising path or journey. And I was always. Quickly to blame the, you know, obviously external barriers that exist for female founders, for brown women. So I had kind of, I feel like all the odds were stacked against me. And in my mind, I really internalized that going, you know, forward and going into these investor meetings, as opposed to taking agency um, or having a sense of agency in my own life and path. So a lot of the rejections I've gotten early on became in a way how I defined myself. And I almost started listening to those rejections as a reflection of my work ethic and potential or lack thereof. And so that ultimately I think was what I called the glass ledge is because instead of always shattering glass ceilings, which I think is What we as women are prompted to do now if we want to advance in the workplace is go out there and shatter glass ceiling after glass ceiling. But I think we're not really talking enough about, well, can you take a step back and really hone in on your own internal dialogues and how you see yourself, your own self-perspective, and being able to move through life with conviction and self-assurance.
0: You know, it's kind of interesting. There was something you said in the book that really resonated when you talk about how women stumble off the glass ledge or fall off it or roll off it I don't know some combination of maneuvering but when you said that there's this moment where physical and emotional exhaustion just come to a head and then you're starting to spiral and I thought that was so interesting as as a female executive mother of two someone who's always on (laughs)
1: exhausted that was kind of how I would best describe the moment in 2018 when everything just you know hit rock bottom and I just felt like that for a long time, I was just spiraling and I was physically exhausted and mentally exhausted. And I didn't really show up anymore with the same confidence and the same self-assurance I once did when I first started my company. And, you know, I think at some point when you start feeling that way, you want to take a step back and, and ask yourself, well, what happened in between what's going on? Why am I not, you know, showing up with as much passion? Why do I not have conviction in what I have to say in my own uh, work ethic and, and potential and competence and intelligence? Why am I doubting myself constantly? And then you slowly kind of realize after asking yourself those uncomfortable questions that one, you either started internalizing a lot of the outside world's rejection or background noise, or you really kind of lost passion for what you did and you, you're you not really move in with confidence about, you know, your values and you're not championing them in the right way. So there are a few things or also a lot of it might also stem from, you know, early on experiences in your life, whether it's childhood or your upbringing, or maybe something that happened to you along the way that you haven't properly processed or healed from. So a lot of these revelations come to the surface when you start taking inventory of your own trigger points and your own feelings and how you show up in the world and how that's different from how you want to show up in the world.
0: Yeah, you know, I've known you professionally and peripherally compared to a lot of other people. For a few years now, I'm a contributor to Sway. I love the platform and what you're doing to elevate women's voices, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people who know you will will know what I say when I say. When I saw the, the topic of your book, it really surprised me because the way I've seen you has always been as somebody who's very astute, very humble, but really incredibly smart and obviously you're a former beauty queens, so drop dead gorgeous, but successful female tech founder, which is very hard to do, you know, to succeed as a female founder in this world and a thought leader. I mean, were people surprised when you started writing and talking about this? Yes and
1: no. I I mean, it depends because I feel like also along the way, I've always been very vulnerable about the process itself. And there were a lot of articles I've written in the past or press that has covered kind of my own journey that talked about some of the struggles I've faced. Um, but yes, I think the reason why I've also been very much a champion of vulnerability, because one, it's a form of power. So I feel like the more vulnerable I am, and the more I'm honest and transparent about what I'm going through, the less it can be used against me. But also, it make, it's like a relief for me. I don't want to have to go through life Carrying that pressure of being perfect all the time and being someone that people supposedly look up to, but then deep down really not talking about the struggles and the failures along the way, because I also feel that's not a realistic way of being a role model. Everybody has some kind of, you know, traumatic experience they've gone through. Everybody's going through their own challenges on a daily basis, on a monthly basis. Everybody's going through their own transformations. So for me to be the type of person that portrays this facade of just everything being perfect, just never really sit well with me. but i will say i think a lot of people when they meet me and they also just hear maybe high level my resume or what i've done so far and you know how ambitious i am people already assume that okay um she's obviously got it really good and then she's living the best life and then also a lot of the time is oh she probably it's easy for her it just falls in her lap but it's not true I've always always worked twice as hard um, and I think I've always also carried a chip on my shoulder because of my own experience moving here as a teenager with my parents from Morocco and having to start over at that age uh, was a lot more difficult for me than I had realized and also just witnessing my own parents downgrading their life to bring us here because they believe in our future and the American dream also uh, made me carry a lot of guilt throughout my life, which I think was kind of the driving force behind me not ever wanting to be average and really doing something that will make my parents proud because they've gone through a lot to give us this kind of life and give me this opportunity to be great and, you know, do great things in life, which I don't think I, sh- I could have gotten in Morocco, although we had a great life and we were really well off, but it's not the same as coming in to America and really making the most of your life and doing things that are outside of your comfort zone and leading with, you know, your values and creating something from the ground up. So I think that that background story is very important when I meet people to tell, because I think it really brings down, I would say the wall that they have when it comes to me. And I feel like a lot of people that don't know me probably think of me as something I'm really not.
0: Yeah, and you do have this amazing background, and I want to talk about that. And then, of course, your your newest tech venture, which sounds amazing. I do want to go back to this idea of vulnerability because I've talked to my kids. I have two sons, so I, Mm -hmm. I feel like they're in a different place in life compared to if I had two daughters. Hard as that is for me to acknowledge. But this idea of being vulnerable and, you know, these days everything is on social media. Kids are sharing everything on social media. You know, when I was younger and trying to make it in the world as a, as a career woman, I did my best to hide my vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. frankly, because I don't believe often it's in your best interest to reveal your vulnerabilities in a very male dominated world. And, and I would imagine that for younger people, my recommendation would be don't show your vulnerabilities on social media. Don't talk about your personal life, you know, be the professional. And obviously I'm old school, but for older women, successful women, maybe it's easier for them to, to get away with it. What are your thoughts on that? Maybe I'm wrong.
1: No, I think you're right. Because I feel like vulnerability obviously is a double-edged sword and you want to make sure, and the same thing with authenticity, right? Like you want to make sure that you're using it to your own advantage as opposed to making it uh, work against you, which definitely, I think the, especially when you're first starting off in your career. And I, when I was first kind of Getting my first job and and, you know, climbing up in the corporate world and before even when I launched my company and up probably until a few years ago, I really didn't embrace vulnerability because I definitely thought that it would work against me and it would make me appear less competent or less intelligent because I was struggling in some ways or whatnot. But once you make it, I think, up to a certain level and people start looking up to your success or, you know, um, career path, it definitely won't hurt you. I think it will help you become more relatable. So the way to use vulnerability is not just kind of going around and complaining to everyone that can listen about all the struggles you've had. And, And that's not really the point of it. I think you use it to become more relatable, but also to make a point and share lessons. So now that I I felt like I am on the other side of my professional and personal transformation, it helps for me being vulnerable because I can now draw the lessons I learned from those lowest points in my life and then help women to possibly avoid them or even just maybe they're going through it to learn from them and also see that they're not the only ones going through some tough time. So really being that relatable factor is very important. But I, I see what you mean by that, too. I feel like also coming from Morocco and as a brown woman that was raised in somewhat of, you know, Muslim, conservative country, it's very also Uh, frowned upon to show people that you're struggling and to talk about your lowest points and your vulnerabilities. It's not seen well at all. And so for me, I had to really mass up the courage to be this vulnerable and say, yes, we struggled when we first came here. Yes, I had to go through depression as a teenager. Yes, I struggle from anxiety even to this day. Yes, I failed a couple of times even when it comes to fundraising, but I'm still pushing through. So there are times that, you know, when you start talking about those vulnerabilities, it does help you be more human and be more vulnerable. And also it helps to build a brand as well, that people can kind of feel part of the community. And I think that that was very helpful for me when it comes to building a a community around Sway is that I didn't ever want to be this founder that was out of touch, that was so up there that, you know, your community doesn't really relate to you. Because I think at the end of the day, people join companies and people invest in companies based on... The leadership and if the leadership doesn't show vulnerability and relatability it's hard to connect with them so i think again it has its pros and cons but you just want to make sure that you use it for your advantage as opposed to letting it hurt you especially early on in your career
0: That's super interesting and I agree with that. As you mentioned, you do have this amazing background. You started in science and then you joined pageants as a beauty queen and then a tech founder, now author. And I just wanna connect the dots just a little bit before we talk about your sway and also your newest venture. So in your book, you say that your parents were very successful executives who sacrificed sort of their stability and success to come here to make life easier for you. You came here and so you were you know, like like me, right? I, I grew up in India and I came here to go to grad school and like halfway smart Indians, you are on kind of the medical trajectory. So like, you, you know, you have a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and mm-hmm. biology. I have a, actually exactly the same uh, undergraduate degree in biochemistry and biology, mm-hmm. <laughs> So then you went on to get a master's degree. Is that right? In science? Yes. In bioengineering. Mm-hmm. In bioengineering. So what happened next? How did you get involved in doing medical missions to, to countries like Morocco and, and others?
1: Yes yeah, so I was president of the students for public health uh, my first year in graduate school and we brought an amazing doctor his name is Dr. Gilhode who did a presentation for our club the students for public health club. And I was really, really impressed with the stories he was telling us. So he's a 40-year-plus veteran in medical missions. He started when he was in med school himself. Now he's in his 70s. And he talked about all the amazing medical missions he's done throughout the world, um, the team he's built around it, the and- all these students that have gone with him and just kind of the the lessons he's learned along the way. And he's dedicated his life to that initiative and it's called Mission to Heal. Um, that's the organization, the nonprofit that he started to specifically focus on medical missions to help restore proper healthcare in remote areas around the world. And so after his presentation, I sat down with him, obviously to thank him and just say how impressed I was with everything he's done. And I was also telling him that I'm from Morocco and, you know, I've always wanted to do something like this. this is why I wanted to the medical path is to really be able to give back. and so he invited me to his following mission, which was in South Sudan, probably a month later from that presentation he did. and this was um twenty. 12, it was December 2012, so it was going to be a medical mission that's over between December to January, so a month long, so you spend New Year's there and all, and South Sudan at the time was going through a civil war, South Sudan versus obviously North Sudan, so it was just not a safe place to go, but he really sold me on it, and I asked my parents to help me fund the trip, and so they weren't really excited about me going to a war zone, but they definitely saw the excitement I had had and um, potentially just the growth that you learn from that experience. So I ended up going with a friend who was also in my class. She's actually from India as well. And so we were the only two girls and a group full of men and just doctors. And we were the only ones who were not doctors, but we did get certified to, to help in the OR, but we were more on the, on the engineering side, on the biotech side, but as well as biochemistry lab. So they've They've got a lot of labs out there too that they need help with. So we were able to help on that end. But that was my first mission. And I was, I think, 22 or 23 at the time. And I, that was, I still talk about it to this day, the best um, experience in my life. It was very, very outside my comfort zone. I mean, we were in very kind of remote villages with no water, no bathrooms. You kind of had to figure it out and, and, and go out in the in the wilderness and do your business there. And then you couldn't shower as much unless you go and get water. So it was really humbling experience. But also we, we probably spent almost 12 hours a day doing operations on people that really never accessed healthcare before, you know, people who can't go to hospitals. So it definitely opened my eyes into a whole world and just the amount of impact that can be had in this world. And and also for me at the time, this was kind of post-college, post, uh, you know, during grad school. So up until then, It was always kind of about the money, like which career should I take? um, Which path should I take to make the most money? And, you know, I'm going to become a doctor because I want to make money. It was not until I've gotten on that experience that it really was, it shifted my perspective to, to be more about impact in my life as opposed to money driven. And it was probably the most fulfilling experience as well. So I ended up going on many more after that. And then I was able to also organize a mission with Mission to Heal to my own native country, which they've never gone to before. It took two years to organize because you had to kind of go through the Ministry of Health and have everything in order. And they've never done medical missions there before. So there was a lot of paperwork to be done and just verifications. I almost gave up on it, but for two years, I was back and forth trying to make it work. And I finally did that in 2013. And I I spent a month in the area where my dad's from um, because it's all remote villages and they don't have access to hospitals. So we were able to really work with some amazing doctors from Morocco to also go to these areas and be able to help restore proper healthcare and, you know, do a lot of work that was impactful. So ultimately I say that's how I want to, you know, spend the rest of my life. Once I am financially stable and free, I want to go back and do a lot of those missions um, around the world because just the, there is no feeling that's comparable And everything I've done so far in my life doesn't really compare to the time I spend on these missions. It's just a completely different feeling and a completely different surrounding and probably the most humbling experience I can ever ask for.
0: So how many medical missions did you do? And then how did you end up going from there to competing in beauty pageants?
1: Yeah, I did about, I think, four or five. One mission had different countries in it. So we were hopping around Africa. So I think there was like three different countries. And then I went to Ecuador and Morocco after that. So I saw my time in grad school as also a way to experiment outside my comfort zone. While I was in grad school, I... I did these missions, but I also was doing beauty pageants at the same time, mostly because my mom really encouraged me to explore my feminine side, um, as she says. And so she signed me up for my first pageant in Colorado when I actually was in an internship in, in Germany. And so when I came back from Germany, I basically was called to compete in Miss Colorado USA because I was chosen as one of the finalists to be uh, competing on stage. And I realized that my mom had actually signed me up and it was a little bit of a a back and forth between her and I, because I wasn't really excited about it. I never saw myself as a, (laughs) uh, as a girly girl or someone (laughs) that would ever go into pageants, especially In comparison to what I was doing in my academic/slash professional life at the time, and it was very scientific. I always thought pageants were for women who wanted a modeling career or women who wanted to become actresses or go into the entertainment business. So to me, it just didn't really make sense to be kind of like one of the only girls out there as a scientist competing for pageantry I just didn't think I would ha- ever have a shot but I you know to please my mom I went with it and I I did my first pageant in 2012 and I actually really fell in love with the process more than the competition itself So when I competed for my first pageant back in 2012, I obviously wanted to win, you know, just like everything I do in life, winning is very important. So I I definitely wanted to give it my all. But what I also fell in love with is the process. Um, of preparation and the growth that came from it. I spent a lot of time, first of all, transforming myself from inside out. So mentally, physically, um, psychologically, I spent a lot of time almost getting to know myself because part of Winning a pageant is being able to sell yourself to a panel of judges in under two minutes. Um, you only have two minutes to impress them with your background, who you are, why you'd be the best title holder for the state, why you would be a change agent in the community if you were ever to win that pageant, and what would you do with that title on that platform? Because I think what a lot of people don't really know is that pageantry is also a platform for community service, for career growth for professional transformation and just really having a voice and being able to amplify that voice and give other people in your community that voice as well. And so I never up to that point, never really practiced questions about who I am. I never did like mock interviews. So I had a pageant coach that really walked me through all of that. And I was like, wow, this is not only just pageant preparation, but this is like a life boot camp. This is definitely going to be helping me in interviews to get a job, in public speaking, and being able to sell yourself and persuade people about your talent and maybe your company one day or what what your values are. So it was a really interesting and eye opening opening process that I had never really learned about before. And I think most people would agree that all you see about pageantry on TV or in the news is just the the swimsuit portion and the, the evening gown portion. And maybe there's like an onstage question that, you know, sometimes very nerve wracking and a lot of contestants mess that up. And so now it's gotten this kind of bad stereotype about pageantry. And people think it's shallow. It's just about the glitz and glam, but it's completely not at all. So I fell in love with that process. And just like the medical missions I was doing um, on the side as well, it was part of my growth. You're actually the second beauty pageant winner
0: I've interviewed on my other podcast, When It Mattered. I interviewed another amazing woman, Erin Walzuski. She's now an attorney at Cooley LLP. And she also was was somewhat of a reluctant beauty pageant winner and she just wanted to get some scholarship money but Mm -hmm. she won a Miss Iowa which my friend and producer Jeremy's from but you know as I say in the podcast she didn't know for the longest time what the real prize was she did win the crown but the real prize was eventually finding her path to a Harvard education and developing this incredible passion for public service, much like you mm-hmm. And you know she lost Miss America, but she she says it would be the best loss of her life because she was then able to do a year of public service and develop this confidence and poise and invaluable public speaking skills mm-hmm. and also scholarship money to get into college. So I think, people really underrate the value that beauty pageants bring simply because of the rigor Mm -hmm. that you have to bring to the process. So did it help you when you sort of took the next path in your journey of
1: becoming a tech founder? Oh my God. Yes. That's the reason why I'm where I'm at today. And, And that's another thing I feel like a lot of people didn't know is that. I launched Sway ultimately because I won the the title of Miss New York, United States in 2015. And that gave me a voice that I felt like I didn't have before, especially being in New York. And at the time I had just moved to New York, not only like six months before. So I was very new to the area, to the state, to the the city. And I had absolutely no network, no friends. Um, I found a job prior to that on Craigslist. (laughs) Can you believe it? (laughs) it's like, if if I tell that to people now, they're like, what are you thinking? Who applies for jobs on Craigslist? Well, the kinds of jobs that are now on
0: Craigslist are very different than when you first. (laughs) Exactly,
1: (laughs) exactly. And so, you know, I think at that time I was just trying to figure out, okay, now I moved to New York, what's next? Like, how do I establish myself in this very competitive environment? And so my boyfriend, now my fiance had told me that, I had made it to first runner-up in Miss Colorado, USA, and I was very bummed out about it because I felt like I was so close to winning. And then, you know, he called me, he said, you should just maybe move to New York. And I think maybe you're you're not meant to win Miss Colorado. You're meant to win a, a New York title. I'm like, that is impossible because if I couldn't compete with the women in Colorado, there's no way I can compete with women in New York. Everything is competitive in New York. But, you know, he still pushed me towards it, encouraged me, he sponsored me for it and then i ended up winning on my first attempt which was very surprising to me and i just felt like that was a sign that i i was meant for more especially in my career i felt also at that time i was a little bit stuck you know i had done great as a scientist in the R&D world uh, in biotech, especially cancer research. And then when I moved to New York, I took on more of a a scientist communication specialist role and kind of moved over to the communications and marketing side of biotech, which was great. But I also didn't feel fulfilled um, completely. So when I won the title of Miss New York US in 2015, I definitely saw that as a platform and a stepping stone to potentially start my own thing. I had absolutely no idea what that was, which is why the first thing I did was to start a podcast. And at the time there weren't that many women focused podcasts that were elevating kind of women's stories. And what what my goal was that I wanted to really do it for selfish reasons, because I just wanted to interview and talk to successful women to pick their brains. But I just didn't feel comfortable reaching out to them and saying, hey, let's go for coffee or let me pick your brain about, you know, career stuff. So podcasts made the most sense because I was also very much obsessed with it in my cubicle. That's all I listened to all day long for eight hours a day while I was doing my work. And I'm like, what? Maybe I should now that I have a, a platform as Miss New York, that's, you know, when my platform became women entrepreneurship and women advocacy. And so that's how the podcast was born. Um, At the time it was called Entrepreneurs in Vogue. Now it's Women Who Sway. And I started reaching out to really interesting women I read about, or I found online or met through events and interviewed them about their own career paths. And I was also focused on women who took unconventional roads to their success. And because at the time I was Really thinking about leaving my corporate career and leaving almost the biotech world and doing my own thing. I just wasn't sure what it was. So ultimately, the podcast really did well. Uh, was number two in iTunes for a bit when it launched, and after that, I really built an amazing audience. Then I turned that into a blog, and then the blog turned into Sway because after a few years running the blog, a lot of women also reached out to contribute to it and be part of the the content and the platform. So that's when I decided, all right, so this is great as a blog, but I think it could be bigger as its own media brand that actually focuses on elevating women's stories in a storytelling form. And so in 2017, I officially rebranded the podcast and everything as Sway and then started raising money for it to basically make it a really a standalone media brand that supported women's stories that were not prioritized by mainstream media at the time.
0: Sway today is successful despite the rejection of that investor, right? And and where does this new AI platform fit in? How do the two pieces fit in?
1: Yeah, Sway is successful in a humble way. You know, we're not like a multi-million dollar company had, obviously, we didn't always have all the resources. We needed to grow at that scale. But I'm very happy with where we are now because it's a a company now that sustains itself and really found a way around the traditional media business model. And it's also a niche, you know, so we're focused on um, a community of women and content. So we're not trying to be the next kind of Huffington Post or anything of that sort, but rather a small and mighty community and and platform that promotes storytelling and really elevates female thought leadership. So of course, there's always more that can be done and there's a lot of scaling to do, but I am very happy with being able to run a company now that's not always dependent on, on funding. And that was initially my goal after that moment in 2018. So yes, that's where we are. And then when you're taking things slow with a tech company and a startup, oftentimes you're learning a lot more because you're not under that pressure of venture-backed startups that have to grow Really fast and fail really fast. So, we're really taking our time with um, not only understanding the pain points of our community um, content creators, but also being able to experiment with different features and different technologies that can help streamline a lot of those content creator pain points. And that's where AI came into play. So, right now, the way we've been working with a lot of content creators on the platform is that we have editorial strategists on the team as well as editors um, and even ghostwriters that help some members be able to turn their ideas and thoughts into a fully well-done um, story or piece of writing. So it's all manual. It's all one-to-one. But in order to scale that kind of effort, of course, it's not sustainable. We can't keep hiring a bigger and bigger team of editorial strategists. That's just more overhead. But also scaling to, let's say, a million user is probably not feasible with that kind of model because it's very focused on niche community and niche one-on-one support. But AI is able to facilitate that scaling you know, effort because now it'll be a self-serving platform. So instead of having an editorial strategist help you through, all right, here's how you put together a headline. Here's the outline for your article based on what you told me. And here's all of this stuff. Now AI is able to do that in real time. So that cuts kind of the you know the time spent on 101 calls and the back and forth between an editor and a user and now the user does it all on their own on the platform using ai features and ai copy generation which we call natural language Processing and natural language generation. And now more than ever, it's, it's basically very sophisticated. So there's a lot of new technology that came out, a, a bigger foundation that supports this kind of technology. So we're able to tap into that and be able to create an AI powered platform that helps people create quality content in real time.
0: Yeah, I have to say I do have some mixed feelings about it because I do love my editorial strategist, Kristen, Mm -hmm. who's just incredible. But, you know, we're all accustomed, even in Google Docs, to having the computer attempt to autofill our thoughts, basically our sentences for us. So how does your new platform differ from what's out there today?
1: Right now, there is a lot of, I would say, AI writing softwares out there. There has yet to be a publishing platform that utilizes that as part of their entry editor for their users and the content creators to tap into it. So you kind of have to have a subscription to a writing software that uses AI and then copy and paste that and then maybe, you know, paste it over to your entry editor or your Google Doc, work on it. It's So it's a very scattered process at the moment. What we're trying to do is kind of condense all of that into an all-in-one platform where not only do you create your content there, but you also publish it there and you edit it And then we also don't want to completely get rid of, you know, the editorial strategy and that human one-on-one component, because I think a lot of people, like you said, still really appreciate that. So that's still a very much option to have, but at least a few people that are interested in, you know, just doing things on their own in real time and and kind of minimizing the back and forth with them in an editor or editorial strategist, then they have that option too. So being able to really provide the two options is important. And so for us, it's really important to also have not only the AI copy generation um, software, but also the editing, And, you know, plagiarism checks and grammar checks, you know, the sensitivity checks. So everything is going to be done in one entry editor, which I have yet to see because right now I'm doing a little bit of everything scattered. So I have subscribed to an AI writing software myself. I also use Grammarly as the kind of more in-depth editor with reports of SEO and things of that nature. And then I have to copy paste it into a Google Doc and you know make it nice and then i have to go find an image on unsplash and so it's a very scattered process and we hope that we can condense all of that into one platform so so that way we streamline the entire process for content creators yeah, and I think a lot
0: of this is generational, too. You know, a lot of older writers like myself probably like that human interaction. Younger people are so used to just interacting with their laptop. Many of them probably prefer not have that. They find it faster. So it could be that you're really catering to the new generation of writers.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also, if you look at the Canva model, and I always go back to comparing, you know, kind of our vision with reimagining the future of writing in the same way Canva was able to do that with design. So really being able to have some kind of autonomy and agency over your own design creations, as opposed to having to hire a graphic designer or learning how to use Photoshop, which is quite complicated or taking design classes. And I feel the same way about writing. I think you and I are for, to feel comfortable with writing and we actually enjoy the process and we see it as a creative pursuit. But there are people who are doing writing day to day. And I'm not even talking about blog posts or articles. I'm just talking about, you know, like a sales pitch email or even just like a thank you note or a speech, right? You know, they dread that whole process or even just a cover letter. For example, I know multiple people that have not applied for a job because a cover letter was required, and they, they just didn't know how to write a cover letter, and it's just an overwhelming process for them. So being able to really lower down those barriers for anyone who's struggling with writing in general, it could be from a product description all the way to a research paper, is to me a really kind of big vision and mission I have put myself on because I know I've also struggled with writing early on in my life, but writing became ultimately my escape and journaling and I wrote poetry and I wrote blog posts and also blog posts were able to help me build my own brand and become a thought leader. So I know the importance of putting words into paper. I know the importance of creating quality content in today's day and age to compete with other brands and building your own thought leadership and personal brand as well. But I know it's not accessible and it's not feasible for many people from a mass market perspective. So being able to really sort of solve for that, to me, is kind of a challenge that I want to undertake.
0: Yeah, Bill Gates, I think, said content is king and the internet has proven that. And as we evolve into the next phase of the internet and the metaverse, I think it'll probably likely to be true in different ways. So I think what you're providing is absolutely invaluable. As we wrap this up, I was wondering, do you have any thoughts on how you see Technology like AI changing the art and craft of writing and publishing and how this whole media industry is going to evolve. As you can see every day, it's transforming itself thanks to technology startups like yours.
1: I mean, I think it's definitely on its way to make a lot of changes. I think for humans, our role in the creative process and writing is shifting and in a way we're liberated, right? I think instead of shouldering the burden of originality or coming up with new ways of structuring ideas into well-written pieces, we're becoming more like copy chiefs or editors or creative directors of our own work we're not kind of coming up with all of it from from the ground up so i think that this is really how a lot of you know the ai emerging writing softwares and content creation softwares are going to shift the trend is you're not only going to have to come up with the ideas, but now the AI helps kind of collaborate with you into structuring them in a way that creates ultimately a quality piece of work or a piece of art. And it's the same now with even art generation. So you could probably type into the AI now an astronaut riding a horse in the moon, and then it would turn that into an actual image or artwork that you can use for your content. So it's gotten very, very sophisticated. Now it's just a matter of how do we use this to not necessarily get rid of writers or copywriters, but rather create a collaborative process between AI and humans to create more quality content. Because I think the social media world and the internet at this point needs a lot more quality content as opposed to just anything being published out there.
0: And when do you anticipate the launch of your platform?
1: We are aiming for at least a software version of it could be launched by the end of the year. And then, so we're launching a standalone AI software that can be used by anyone who's not looking to just publish on Sway. And that could be, you know, different templates from blog posts, description, press release, a cover letter. So it's not necessarily geared towards publishing on Sway, but then we're also taking that software and then incorporating it into that Sway publishing platform.
0: That's amazing. And whatever happened to that investor who pulled the rug out from under you?
1: I'm not sure. You know, I think we were able to actually meet in person um, a year later or so in California, and it only reinforced that we were not really aligned. And I, I think that meeting made me feel even better about not working with him specifically we didn't see eye to eye. So I feel like it worked out for the best, but I do have that email of his that I feel like I printed at some point. And that sometimes serves as my motivation because I think a lot of his comments were more kind of undermining the future of the company I'm, I'm building and my own competence. And that's, I guess, the reason why they didn't move forward anymore. And so to me, it's kind of a a great motivator to continue building and growing and kind of not only proving him wrong, but proving myself right.
0: Going back to your book, The Glass Ledge, How to Break Through Self-Sabotage, Embrace Your Power and Create Your Success. Do you feel like all of this emotional excavation you've been through has helped you now to be where you are? And you have this interesting phrase to have stopped allowing a dysfunctional society to turn me into a dysfunctional woman, (laughs) quote unquote
1: yes i think my perspective of the world and of myself have definitely changed over time and i feel like i i'm finally at a point in my career and in my own personal life where i have so much conviction and so much self assurance about the way i make my own decisions the way i want to live my life the choices that i make on a day to day basis as opposed to when i first started in my career i think i was mostly concerned back then with how the outside world will perceive me. And I think I was constantly pursuing outside validation as opposed to really turning inward and focusing on my own needs and my own values. I was always driven by that outside validation and the outside world's perspective of me. And I don't think that's healthy. That's a healthy way to live at all. And I know a lot of younger people when they first get started with their careers, it's kind of at the forefront of their decision-making, especially, you know, if you went to school for a certain subject and then your parents paid a lot of money for you to go to that school, and then you feel bad, probably pivoting and saying, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. Let me just be this now or be an artist so you're always kind of thinking oh but what are people going to say am I going to be accepted for these decisions I'm making that's normal but I think as you kind of go through life and build more experience and go through more failures and, and successes you start to realize that you have a lot more within you that you can leverage and unleash outside of how the world you know sees you and what the world expects out of you.
0: Well, Iman, thank you so much for being a guest on Techtopia today and for this absolutely fascinating conversation.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited I was able to do this with you.
0: Iman Obu is a tech entrepreneur, startup founder, former beauty queen, and the author of a new book just released called The Glass Ledge, How to Break Through Self-Sabotage, Embrace Your Power, and Create Your Success. Iman is on a mission to democratize publishing using the power of AI. This is Tectopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Tectopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Corr, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Wineland and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller, Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.